All right, listeners, I have a serious proposal for you. I believe we should create another certification. It should be the CFT, the Certified Foot Therapist. The complexity of the foot and its integral appropriate function throughout the body is so underappreciated and so undertaught. I think we need to have a better, better understanding of how the foot really impacts the whole chain. Unfortunately, I don't have any desire to create a new certification. So instead, you just get to listen to today's podcast, and that will be the first step of you being an official Paul Certified CFT Therapist. Welcome to Therapists in Motion Podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. Welcome back, listeners. So as you have probably ascertained from the intro, we're going to finish up our ankle dorsiflexion series today and focus on the treatment component of things. Um, and I kind of just want to start out by asking Dan, like, what are some of your annoyances or pet peeves you see when you're looking at treating the foot and, and particularly kind of a, the hands-on component to it? That's, that's, a, that's a really loaded question for not even a minute into our podcast, Paul. Uh, well, we're jumping right into it today, Especially with got, how serious spare. your introduction was. That's very atypical for Paul. Uh, but you know, I think that's a, that's an important thing for me to reflect on because every so often I find myself doing the pet peeves that really bother me. Um, so I'll start with two and then I'll ask the question back to you. Uh, the first one I would say is only mobilizing the talocrural joint in the anterior to posterior direction, doing a straight AP that just like makes this hair on the back of my neck just stand up because Every single physical therapy clinic that I've ever been in has a foot model. And on that foot model, you can clearly delineate that there are multiple nuances and complexities to the tail joint articulation. So that one is one of my big pet peeves of just doing a straight anterior to posterior mobilization. I always found that really funny as we're going through and learning mobilizations, particularly like for the foot, you do a, an AP mob, the tail accrual joint. You know, it makes sense. Huge component, dorsiflexion, right. that posterior motion of the talus. But I feel like we're suddenly treating it like a hinge joint. I mean, yeah. I remember, I literally remember in school going through the complexities of the curvature and concavities and, and whatnot of the actual joint itself. And then suddenly we treat it like a hinge and just talk about the roll and the spin of that and don't appreciate the three-dimensional nature that occurs there. And suddenly we treat it like knee part two. Right. Yep. Huge. The second thing is probably related to the retraining component. And it's related to the lovely utilization of foot intrinsics. And I, trust me, I am not an anti-marble pickup guy. I am not. I think that is a great home program. Uh, like we've talked about in our previous Google PT series is that that's a great home program for somebody to do. But as we went through some education with Brett and our sports medicine crew and, you know, you and I continue to evolve our clinical practice, when we focus on intrinsic foot strength in a functional weight-bearing position, dramatic differences occur, right? Especially when we're talking about, oh, they're having difficulty with push-off phase of gait, or they're having difficulty with running, or they're having difficulty with any other sporting task, and you don't see any exercise prescription for intrinsic foot strength in a weight-bearing position. And we're, you know, kind of like you alluded to in the introduction, the intricacies of the foot and the ankle rival that of the hand 
without the grasping component, right? And, you know, I mean, we've all seen those, those stories of those amazing human beings who learn how to grasp with their feet because they don't have arms, right? And the, the magnificent capability of our feet to do those things. And we, we, we fail to retrain that component of our rehab. Um, so now I'm going to flip it back to you and I'm going to say, what are the, the, the couple of things that really drive you bonkers? So first and foremost, the one that always gets me is when I see someone doing a anterior to posterior mobilization of the talus, whether it's in a straight line or an angle or whatever you're focused on, but yet the foot is in a resting position of plantar flexion or even a neutral position, quite honestly. So I always find it funny. I'm like, oh, is the completely on slack joint capsule moving well? Great. I'm, I'm really happy for you. How's it doing? when it's actually at its end range? I really would like to know why we don't wind the tissue up more appropriately and get a mobilization. That doesn't mean there isn't a time and a place for a plantar flexed foot that you do a mobilization for the focusing and dorsal flexion. There's plenty of times and places for it. Just like you said, Dan, there's a time and a place for marble pickup. There's a time and a place for everything. But I, I feel like too often I have a therapist where I'll see that they're trying to get that last like three to five degrees of dorsiflexion in a closed chain position. And they suddenly put the patient supine on a table with their foot maybe neutral, question mark. Um, and they're just not getting the tissue to the end range. Or they, they load them up into a partially dorsiflex position and don't even think about the fact that we know eversion comes with it. Like just follow the mechanics of the joint, wind the tissue up, and then deliver your mobilization. And whether that's supine, whether that's weight-bearing, whatever it is, think about where is the position of the joint I'm mobilizing and is it actually getting towards the part where I'm going to get some stress in that tissue and potentially create a change that I'm looking for. Before you answer your second point, I totally agree with that. And we see the same thing when we talk about midfoot mobilization, where we'll see midfoot mobilization in a relative open-packed joint position, but not in that closed-packed joint joint position at end range dorsiflexion maybe with even the motion going towards calcaneal e inversion excuse me inversion and you know getting that midfoot to lock up and that's so often you know again in push off phase of gate where you're going to see potential breakdown in those people you know to quote paul ramos is having that la that lazy leg where they stay in that that pronated position and they can't get out of that position it's because of failure to mobilize the midfoot in a dorsiflex position as well. So the next one I know is a huge pet peeve. We'll see if you the one that you state is the one that I'm thinking in my head. But it has to do with those individuals who have chronic sloppy ankles. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I know exactly where Dan's going with this. And I, I'm just going to lump this into a, kind of a larger pet peeve of mine. Um, failing to appreciate the entire movement of the body required for dorsiflexion. So we're going to start with the fibula, which is I know exactly what Dan is going for. <laughs> it is funny to me, though, how often people don't look at fibular motion. When you look at the talocruel joint, what is part of it? The lateral malleolus is part of it. What is that connecting to for people? Like, we need to appreciate the entire bony structure that is working down and creating the actual joint. And yes, the proximal part of the fib can have an impact on the distal component of it. It's not particularly a large weight-bearing structure, but its mobility through the entire chain can impact the distal piece. So it blows my mind when people have you know chronic ankle sprains and ankle instability, which has a ligament that attaches to the fibula, 
And yet they never look at fibular mobility, even distally, let alone the entire chain. Huge piece of the equation, but it does go beyond that. Like I've also seen where people mobilize the bejebus out of the tail crow joint, the, the entirety of the rear foot, even get the midfoot and forget about great toe extension. Yeah. And it's just like, I mean, you're doing a great start. However, if we're talking about walking, which is what I assume the majority of these patients are attempting to do with this dorsiflexion you want to provide them with, if they have no great toe extension, their heel's still coming up early. And all of your amazing work, all of your hard effort to get tail accrual motion improved and feeler motion improved and rear foot, et cetera, et cetera, is out the window because they have this super efficient midfoot and rear foot and the forefoot's not doing a darn thing. <laughs> and it just completely defeats what you're trying to accomplish if you don't get there. You don't do it all in one session, but you got to get there at some point. So let's get into a little bit of treatment of, of applications. I know on a podcast, it's kind of really hard to talk about all of the strategies that we may utilize. But just to get some of our listeners thinking about ways that they can attack the components that we've discussed in our previous two pods about the biomechanics related to the ankle and all the components that rely on for appropriate dorsiflexion, right, and foot mechanics. So why don't you start with an area that I see you treat a lot on your marathon and ultra marathon runners, and that is what you just talked about of, of the pet of one of your you know pet peeves, for lack of a better word, of, of fibular mechanics. So can you kind of just talk to me and our listeners a little bit about some of the strategies that you implore looking at fibular mechanics? So the first thing I almost always like to do is just take a good feel. And we talked about this in one of the previous source selection components or podcasts. What's the end feel? What is my actual end feel? Where am I finding a restriction that is occurring? And then I will ask the patient too, where do you feel that? Like, what do you feel stopping you? Patients give you great feedback. Don't be afraid to ask them, you know, where are you feeling that? Is that a stretch in your calf? Is that a stretch in your Achilles? You feel something pinching in the front of your ankle. Where do you feel that pinching in the front of your ankle? And trust your hands too. I, if I'm going through and I'm passively dorsiflexing the foot, typically in an open chain position, and I feel like my stopping point is the anterior piece of the foot, I'm no, or the anterior part component to the, the tail curl joint, I should say. In my mind, I'm saying, okay, there's something mechanically inefficient about this. And I could give them stretches all day long. I could give them gastroc and soleus and runner stretch and triplanar everything and i don't know if i'm going to truly get what i want to do until i feel like i can clear up the mobility of the joint itself so i'm looking for that joint efficiency and once i feel like i've worked across tail accrual joint the first thing i go to next is the fibula because again that is a piece of the actual joint um, it's a tender spot so you're going to be a little careful with people there but just simply making sure the individual has a appropriate and effective anterior to posterior motion of the distal fib is my starting point. Simple motion, start an open chain, and then I will definitely check it in closed chain as well. And I've seen plenty of patients where they have a anterior pinch they report to me. I work on nothing more than fibular movement, and the anterior pinch goes away, and suddenly they feel a stretch across the actual posterior chain, which is perfect because that's what we theoretically should be feeling. Now, to take that a little bit further, as I mentioned previously, there is a proximal component to this, and I highly, highly recommend you do appreciate it. And I don't want to lead you to think there's only one way this can go, but I feel like there's a common presentation here. So let's go back to the ankle uh, repeated inversion strains. I'm sorry, sprains, my apologies. We know that when you get those repeated inversion sprains, we have seen research that suggests a lot of the pain and issues come from the fibular 
uh, and distal fibula being moved too far anteriorly and you can, you know, tape it posteriorly, mobilize it posteriorly, it's important. Well, again, this is a not weight-bearing bone that has a proximal and distal piece. So if the distal piece is anterior, where do we think that's moved the proximal piece if it's a large straight Ooh, line? I know, I know. <laughs> Ooh, Dan, what do you got? Uh, posterior. Booyah. <laughs> but it happens all the time. You get this posterior component up top, especially if you have a foot mechanic that's not doing great. There's oftentimes some type of compensation up the chain. And I've seen plenty of people that maybe don't have IT band syndrome, but are having a lot of tension through the IT band. And where do some of the fascial connections that IT band go down to? And what's that going to do? Help pull posteriorly. So I've had patients where you do a nice little distal mobe anterior to posterior and a proximal mobe posterior to anterior. You just kind of envision in your brain this line going straight up that's tilted the wrong direction. You push the bottom part back and the top part forward and suddenly you have this now nice straight line up again instead of being off axis. Well, that's going to help with a lot of the efficiency in through there. And then I'm going to look through and what's the soft tissue on it? And what's the soleus connection feel like? Do I have the ability for that fibula to actually move appropriately? And then up and down. The fibula does have a superior and inferior glide. Again, it is not a weight-bearing structure. There is a known superior to anterior, a superior to inferior component that happens. In particular, with dorsiflexion, there should be a superior glide happening across the entire fibula. So you can make sure, put your patient in sideline, go distally, put your hand on the proximal piece, put a mobilizing force, the distal piece moving up and see if you can feel it moving in your hand effectively and tech both sides. There's nothing tricky about it. You can get it really complex and do mobs with movement and all kinds of things. But I just challenge you just to start with seeing, do you feel like it moves up? It moves down, moves back, it moves forward, it moves all planes well, you're going to be in a good place for the foot. Yeah, I think that what Paul just highlighted there with the anterior-posterior glide both and then posterior-to-anterior glide relatively distal and then proximal, right? As well as that inferior and superior glide is the component that before I took dynamic foot ankle through the Institute of Physical Art with Brent Yamasha, I was missing in my rehabilitation component of that lateral that lateral pinch when they would do a squat or that lateral pinch when they get end range dorsiflexion. And even like you said, sometimes that anterior pinch when I'd feel like I would had mobilized their tailor dome and potentially, you know, navicular and first cuneiform. And that was, had a little bit better of a splay component. It was that inability for me. And that was just me not knowing any better and not really thinking through the mechanics of missing that superior glide of the distal fibula upward right and then you know as you alluded to i think in our first pod of that that study that they did in the nba with doing the kt tape across somebody that had an ankle sprain where they gave a little bit of a a posterior pull with some superior pull and all of a sudden they improved their proprioceptive input immediately and showed greater recruitment of musculature, right? Which we've talked about in our last two pods. So that right there, listeners, that like Paul said, you can make that mobilization a lot more complex by adding eversion and inversion and resisted inversion and eversion and adding in the dorsiflexion and plantar flexion component first. But first, just see, does it have motion available or not? And that right there may be one of those things that unlock something in that chronic IT band patient or in that patient with repetitive gastroc strains during lateral cutting motions. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are so many things that from a clinical standpoint, we could give example after example after example that we've, that we've found. And I'm not saying that we're experts at any means, but just that curiosity to look someplace else 
has helped us get that patient to the next level. And just to to state it, because I know I, I use the example of a couple of the uh, the inversion injuries r- repeatedly happening. Because that's a commonly researched thing, commonly seen thing. It happens with the inversion, but it happens with anything too. Like if you have foot problems, you're going to end up typically compensating somewhere. And you get that individual that you look at the wear pattern of their shoe and they keep having a lateral um, wear. You know, what is that doing to the musculature proximal to the ankle? You know, what is that doing to the gastroc, to the soleus, to the peroneals or fibularis longus brevis, whichever you choose on naming them? It's putting a lot of tension through those systems. So don't think this is isolated solely to a ankle sprain. This can occur with anyone that has any type of chronic ankle foot issue just because of the tension through the tissue, the problems, the compensation, the movement up the chain, the force, etc. It, it can be a really gunky area that's greatly underappreciated. And I, not to go too far into it, but I've, I can think of a number of people with IT band syndrome and I need to end up making sure I look at the fibular motion and suddenly like, oh my gosh, like. You know, my ankle feels so much better and you haven't even touched it. And I was like, I didn't even know he had an ankle problem <laughs> going on because the motion was fine. But like, yeah, it's, just, it's uncomfortable. I've had yeah. problems and I feel better when I walk. I'm like, awesome. That's great. Yeah. Uh, okay. So you kind of mentioned that one of your go-to starting places is checking that AP glide. Is that where you go to the vast majority of the time as your first treatment approach? Yeah. Yeah. In in my head, and I, I don't want to make it seem like you have to go a certain order. I always do, but I, I tend to go more of the AP glide across the talus over to the fib down to the rear foot. Then I will move distally from there. That's my typical transition to check through. Yeah. Cause uh, that's that I would say that's a fairly common approach. I'm going to tell you, I take a different approach and I think that that's something for our listeners to play with as well. I usually go rear foot, distraction or decompression first Mm -hmm. where I will block their talus and try and get true sub tailor joint gapping. Now you guys are probably thinking in your head like Paul is too. Wait, how much gapping is actually going to occur at the sub tailor joint guys? It's not much, but that may be enough to allow me to then go into my next mobilization, which is a shear of the calcaneus on the talus. And that is a both, lateral to medial and medial to lateral shear. I tried to figure out (laughs) both with me going through gift and my previous history of studying with the Institute of Physical Art of saying, look, this person doesn't have calcaneal eversion. Therefore, I'm going to only shear them to help create more calcaneal eversion. Do you think that worked? (laughs) No. So I quickly realized that uh, sometimes I can't think my way through every single uh, situation that I have. And some of our classmates will agree that they don't want me thinking through every situation that I come across. And I said, okay, well then I'm going to try something different and I'm going to mobilize both medial to lateral and lateral to medial shear. And all of a sudden that combined with calcaneal distraction got me more calcaneal eversion to assist with the first phase of gait. And I'm like, oh, why would mobilizing the opposite way help? And it's like, well, I have to be able to load it to explode it and I have to be able to unload it to load it, right? So like all of those things kind of came to this this final culmination of, Dan, you idiot, you have to look at both shearing of medial to lateral and lateral to medial. Then I would, go ahead, sorry, what were you going to no, ask? No, I just say, so I'm, I just, I, I want to ask you a question with it. So when you're looking at that, at that shear, are you always going in a, 
because what, what's your line of force? Are you changing your line or are you feeling for an end feel? What are you uh, yeah, looking for? Absolutely. End feel to me, like you said, is always king. So uh, again, there's those unique concavities and weird divots within the subtalar joint. So it's not always a straight, you know, they're in sidelines. So not always straight driving that straight mm-hmm. towards the ground. It, sometimes there's that little variability of like, wait, my hand feels this more on the, uh, you know, on the, on the distal side versus uh, the anterior side versus the posterior side. Um, so I will play with that based on what my end feel is. So yeah, end feel is still king. Every so often then I will change that from a shear to a tilt um, and just move my hand further away from that subtalar joint line and get a tilting motion as opposed to a true shear motion. Again, if somebody is really struggling getting out of an everted position towards inversion in the push-off phase of gait or the other way around. They are that extremely rigid rear foot that can't, for the love of Pete, get anywhere close to eversion on that contact phase of gait. I will use that tilt as a as another little tool in my toolbox, but that's more based on both end feel as well as what their static foot posture is. And so... For those listeners kind of thinking, so where in the world do I start with any of this? Here's my recommendation. Start with, and again, Dan makes a great point. You don't have to start at talocrural joint, but just for a visual purpose, I'm going to go ahead and start there. And start with the typical thinking you're doing a direct anterior to posterior mobilization, just straight back, straight forward to straight back. So if we had an imaginary line, you'd be at kind of a 90 degree angle to something that was running um, perpendicular to the actual foot. So force is straight back. Then try going at a slight angle more medial. So you're still right in the middle of the foot, still right in the middle of the talus. Go a little more medial, and then a little more medial, and a little more medial. So keep changing your angle. So instead of that 90 degrees off of perpendicular, you go to 80 and 70. And so you can keep working to like 45, and then go the other direction. And after you've done that, move to a more medial aspect of the talocrural joint. So go just towards the... Um, inside or away from, I guess, medial malleolus, you could say, and do the exact same thing there. And then go over to lateral side and go just inside the lateral malleolus and go a little from there. Just think about the angles of force and just see what you feel with it. See if you notice a difference. Then you can start to get any more creative. Like Dan said, you can start adding more more of a tilt into things and just a straight shear. But just start by thinking, I'm just going to drive my force every direction I think I can and see what you feel like the motion is across there. And then also think through the mechanics of the joint. And again, you will find a lot of times someone might say, like, I'm feeling this pinch, you know, on, on the anti-aspect of, of my ankle. I'll say the front of their, you know, their, their ankle typically. And they'll point over and they're pointing towards that lateral component over by lateral malleolus, a common place for like an anterior impingement type of issue. And you move over towards that lateral piece and think about how the talus is going to move and drive the talus, not just straight back or straight angle, but more along those lines and see the difference you can find in your treatment. Do a little test retest and it's a great place to start. And it can teach you a lot just by being, and Dan uses this all the time, purposeful in your mobs. Don't just go through and kind of hammer things. Really think, I'm going to try a bunch of different angles, see what I feel. And then does that match up mechanically? That does match up mechanically with things. Let's try mobbing it a little bit and then retest their motion and see if I or they feel a difference afterwards. And I think what Paul just hit to there is the is the, is one of the big nuggets, regardless of what your mobilization is, whether it's on the ankle, 
you know, at the Taylor Cruel joint, whether it's on the sub-Taylor joint, whether it's on the midfoot trying to get, you know, cuneiform splay, whether it's at the first MTP working on an extension, whether it's the fibula, is get to that point just by practice. And where does it feel hard? And some would say, well, why would I want to treat where it's going to feel hard? And I would say, and Paul and I have had the discussion, that's actually where you're going to get immediate success, right? Success begets success. So if I start to improve fibular mechanics, that is going to unlock so many other things in their chain that while it might not seem like that's where I should start, that often is where you should start, right? And I want to ask you, Dan, because I get this question a lot myself is how long? Like, how long do I try working on something to get a, a change? Do I work on it for two minutes, for five minutes, for 25 minutes? Like, what do you want if you're going to test dorsiflex, closed chain dorsiflexion, feel like you found your hard end feel, and then you're going to retest? How long are you spending there typically? Or what's going through your mind to decide when you want to retest or try a different attack? That's a great, that's a great question. And, and, <laughs> I was actually going through that in my head this afternoon, this morning with uh, with the patient not on their ankle, but on another body body part. I'm like, how much longer do I'm going to work on this? And so when that popped into my head, I'm like, nope, I'm immediately going to go to neuromuscular reeducation. I'm going to go to a regional component for some muscle recruitment. And if I see improved muscle recruitment, I knew no, I I, I was in the right place for enough amount of time to be able to make a muscle firing pattern change. So could it be 30 seconds? It could be 30 seconds. Could it be three minutes? It could be three minutes. Most of the time I would say I'm not staying, especially if we're talking on the the bony structures that are in the ankle. I'm probably not having my uh, bone marrow on their bone marrow for too long of a period of time or I'm going to get a swift kick to the back of the head. But yeah, I would say anywhere between 30 seconds and three minutes, and then I'm going to do a quick retest test with some sort of neuromuscular re-education, whether that's a PNF technique, whether that is a single leg balance with the lower extremity reach, whether that is a half kneeling, you know, drive their knee towards the wall, like all of those things to get some sort of active muscle engagement before I either move on to a different technique or I'm like, nope, that wasn't quite enough. I need to go back and hit it for a few more, you know, repetitions. I, I love that because I, I, I was trying to think. I'm like, I don't know if I have a particular time frame, but I, in my mind, I'm thinking probably 60 to 120 seconds, so one to two minutes, like you said. Or if I don't feel like I'm creating a change in that end feel, I'm either thinking, all right, am I making a, a change? I need or I need to go elsewhere to find a different level of success, and that might be where. And maybe you do go down to that rear foot, you know, where Dan likes to start. Cause there, I could make a strong argument for it's a weight bearing structure. Give the foundation a successful component first. When I look at the pelvis, I'm going to treat coccyx first and then sacrum and then an ominate. I'm going to progress and create, I'm creating a, a successful base for the rest of the, the foundation of the core and the lumbar spine, et cetera. Why would the foot have to be any different? Why can't I go to the most distal component, create a successful base and build from there? That might be exactly what they need. So it's right to say, don't feel like you have to get stuck. or don't feel like they're missing dorsiflexion. So you're going to just mobilize the crap out of that. Look and be purposeful again. Try for that. You know, I think Dan's hit it perfectly in you know, a 30 seconds to three minutes. See if you're feeling a change either in the end feel or you notice a improvement in muscular recruitment or mechanic efficiency and then decide, do I need to make a little more change? Do I need to go somewhere else? There isn't a right or a wrong, which I think is the fun of our profession. There's no, I can't just tell you with this 
ankle diagnoses, do this for this amount of time and you'll get right. better. The, the Half the fun is figuring out what does this person in front of me need and what is the key to unlocking their success? That's what keeps me interested in this profession. Um, so don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of going, I don't know where to go. Cool. I never know where to go. I'm going to figure it out on every single patient, even if I've seen it a thousand times before. Yeah, I think that's a great thing. So we've talked about rear foot. We've talked about Taylor cruel. We've talked about fib. So, you know, in our previous two pods, we talked about the importance of mid-fit mo- midfoot mobility and first array. So let's go to just quickly here. Let's go to a couple treatment nuggets, mobilizations that you like that people could envision for both midfoot and or first array. And then let's do a little bit of discussion on some functional retraining, you know, that may help them, our listeners, plus you and I, uh, with activating foot intrinsics and some good tools that are out there that no, we are not getting paid by these people that we're going to name drop, but they are really good tools. Yes. I mean, great question, Dan, you know, and again, in school all too often, I feel like we keep relatively simple mobilizations through the midfoot. Uh, we keep something simple through the forefoot. I can remember grabbing the big toe and just wiggling it in all different directions instead of actually thinking, let's see the big toe for it to go into extension. I need first ray plantar flexion. And I can tell you that me working through plantar flexion, plantar flexion makes such a great difference in my success. And there's other things to clean up. But then that also leads to the ability to actually get the the joint of the um, the big foot, uh, big foot, sorry, joint of the big toe, where you're getting that first ray of plantar flexion and then the great toe extension coming together to be able to bear weight through it. There's a lot of complexities to this. So what I do think we want to do is let, let's give a little listener bonus out of this. We, we, we've talked nicely through Taylor cruel joint. I still feel like there's a lot we could talk about there. But again, this is, this is part one of Paul's CFT training. You know, there's a lot to talk about. It is. So I I think, I think we need to put together a little part four here, um, for make us a four part series because there's a lot of midfoot to talk about, a lot of great toe to talk about. We haven't even gotten to how to retrain. We haven't gotten to the intrinsics beyond you know, Dan's acceptance of the marble pickup is a possible option for his patients. Uh, and then functional progression. So I feel like we have a lot to tackle still. So what do you think, Dan? Should we, should we say look well, forward to part four? Special part four? All right. So on the fly, blue light special part four. So hopefully you've learned some good things so far. If you have additional thoughts or the treatments you've loved across the area, please feel free to share. You always know where to reach us at therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com. So thanks again for listening and talk to you next time.